invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Colossians chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. I'll ask you to stand in reverence to the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Stand in knowing that in the Scripture and in the Scripture alone, we know the true story of the world. Now I'm going to read this, and throughout the sermon today, I'm going to acknowledge when the plural is a plural, so we get a sense of the fact that this is a message to a people, not just an individual person. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. For I want y'all to know how great a struggle I have for y'all and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you all with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you all in spirit, rejoicing to see you all's good order and the firmness of you all's faith in Christ. Therefore, as you all received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him." rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as y'all were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, teach us today. Teach us for Your glory and our eternal good. May we know the encouragement of the gospel today. May we taste afresh and anew the goodness of the good news. May our spines be stilled with truth. May our hearts be soft with love. May we be a people who are rooted in Christ and His church. We pray these things for Your glory and our eternal good. In Christ's name, Amen. may be seated. You know, as we look around today and we see so much confusion, so much that can only be described as cultural chaos, we see this in all kinds of issues related to gender and sexuality and a Abortion and euthanasia and the paternal-like overreach of the state all around us. It's rooted in what sometimes call, is called expressive individualism. The worldview is basically, I told me so. The slogans, you be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself. In this way of thinking about the world, the the highest good 
is my self-defined freedom, my self-defined happiness. And perhaps most importantly of all, it's important that I express my self-defined freedom and my happiness. So we see things all around us that just simply cause anybody with a normal sensibility to to shake our head, Uh, men competing against women in athletics, and, and so many other things. But I mentioned that this morning. Not to just rail about those issues, but I mentioned that because I'm afraid that, that many of us have a response to the confusion and chaos we see all around us that is something like this. God, I thank you that I am not like these other men. Luke 18.11, the Pharisee, standing by himself. It's the, the wording there is very particular. Standing by himself and prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Which is simply a different type of expressive individualism. One with religious jargon. You see, this sort of pervasive and radical individualism pulls yourself out, singles yourself out, and it gets your identity from the fact that you are separated from others. And it it says, look what I have done. Look who I am. Look at what I say. Look at what I do. Brothers and sisters, that is expressive individualism. I thank you that I am not like these other men. One of the things that Jesus saves us from is this kind of radical individualism. One of the things that Jesus saves us from is from this dead-end notion that we can provide what we need through our own self-defined self-expression, which is really just self-absorption. Absorption, whether it comes in religious jargon or not, the word for it in the Bible is pride. Expressive individualism is a manifestation of human pride. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The text tells us that The religious figure in Luke 18 is the one who singles himself out. And a couple of verses later, there's one who cries out, God, be merciful to me, a a sinner. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus was with the disciples, it's one of their better moments before his crucifixion and resurrection And he said that there would be one who would betray him. And the text tells us in Matthew 26, 22, they were very sorrowful. And that they began to say one by one, 
Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Now that is an honest way of seeing yourself. You see, you and I can shake our heads at expressive individualism that is a part of a culture that we reject. But the answer to that is not our own expressive individualism with a culture that we prefer. The Bible does something radical. It calls us in Christ to see ourselves in Christ and in the body of Christ. It calls us to to reckon ourselves from that point forward, not in the singular, but the plural. You see, we have no place for pride because anyone who is saved is saved 100% because of the sovereign grace of God in Christ Jesus. We can't look at any sinner and say, I am better than you. He saved us from that. We can't look at anyone else. What we need is sovereign grace. And in Christ, that's what we have. But He has also placed us in a body of people like us, who are sinners whose only hope is found in Christ. And now we live in this community of the adopted children of God who are only there by His absolute sovereign grace. And we live in the plural. You see, the body of Christ in the Bible has a local expression. It's called the church. And we are to all live in these communities. The call to love Christ in the New Testament also includes how we love Christ and how we grow in our love of Christ. And we do so by loving the church. If Christ is the head and the church is the body, how foolish would it be to say, I love the head and have nothing to do with the body? You see, it's partly because this plural identity, the importance and priority of the church, is so pervasive in the Scripture that we often miss it. It is so pervasive that that what we do is not just point out a text here or a text there. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Yes, that's an important text. But, but, But that's just a text that is expressing what the entirety of the New Testament is calling us to. We we so often come to letters like Colossians and and we act like it wasn't written to a church. And it's not written in the plural. We act like it it can be lived out apart from the community that it's called to be lived out in. We individualize everything because we are more gripped by this expressive individualism than we would like to believe. See, this, like so many other letters, is meant to be heard, understood, and applied in the plural, in light of the church. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, To the saints 
and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, that is the church, grace to y'all and peace from God our Father. In, in, in verse 18, and He is the head of the body, the church, speaking of Christ here. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that He, that in everything He might be preeminent. In chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for y'all's sake. Who is the, the church? And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. Paul says... I rejoice in my sufferings as long as they build up the church. That's how important the church is. He goes on to say the second at the end of verse 27 down through verse 29, Christ in y'all, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. Do you, do you hear? All of that is about the church, the love of the church, the willingness to suffer for the church. The church is rightly described as the group of people whom it can be said, Christ in y'all. The hope of glory. Now, in the section we're looking at today, Paul points us to a family, a treasure, and a tree. First of all, a family. Look at the first two verses. For I want y'all to know how great a struggle, the, the, the word is agon, we, we get the word agony, how great a, an agonizing I have for y'all and for those that lay out a sea about ten miles away. And for all who have not seen me face to face, now, there's so much here. He just talked about proclaiming Christ and toiling, that is, laboring, growing weary, struggling. That's the word agony again. Agnizomai, struggling with all his energy. And now he tells them, the church at Colossae, he's never been there, but he wants them to know, I have been agonizing for you. He, he doesn't desire to tell, he, he desires to let them know, I don't want to just instruct you at a distance. I am agonizing for you. Within my soul, I am longing for you to stay on the right path. He longs for them. He agonizes over them. He doesn't simply love the church as an abstraction. He loves the church with problems and people. That's actually redundant. They're the problems because there are people. Uh, 1 Corinthians is the most messed up church in the New Testament. And honestly, it's the most messed up church I've ever heard of. And that's saying something. And Paul pours out his heart. And he recognized that there's a remnant of believers. He calls them the saints of God. See, there's a love for the church, not as an abstraction, but to get your hands dirty and agonize over a people. And he always longs to see them face to face. Paul has a theology of face to faceness. 
He's always longing, not just to write to these people, but everybody he wants to see face to face. The, the face-to-faceness of the church is what makes the gospel visible. You, all of us in our homes just getting some instruction, watching online, is not the face-to-faceness that makes the gospel visible. This is. You see, there is a, a reality of personalness about what we are doing here. And that's why Paul is constantly mis- mis- mentioning this. And in fact, all of this is rooted in the beatific vision, the vision of beauty that we all long for in the end. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Meaning face to face with the glory of God in a new heaven and new earth. Face to face with the glory of Christ. I wonder, do, do you think that that promise can be fulfilled on a video screen? Do you think we're going to be ushered into the new heavens and new earth? And what has been called the beatific vision, the beauty of seeing God is going to be on a screen? No, it says it is face to face. Do you see this longing? You know, oftentimes um, it's the coach that is hardest on his players that the players end up in the long run have the most affection for. If, if the players know that coach is actually really for them. Same way with parents. The, the parent who is harsh but is emotionally withdrawn, almost always creates rebellious children. The the parent that is really tough, but is obviously in there, and it's so clear they're sacrificing for their children, produces something often that is very beautiful. Paul says, listen, I'm going to write to you. I want you to get on the right track. I am agonizing for you. I long to see you face to face. And then look what he says. That... In verse 2, that's a purpose clause that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, their hearts, their their controlling center. Here's what I want. I want you to be encouraged. The word means strengthen. I I want you to be cheered up. I I, I want you to be comforted. I want you to know that, that, that we come alongside you. You come alongside each other. I want you to know the encouragement that we are in this together. And that is going, ought to be expressed in the way we love that, that, that we are being knit together, he says, in love. Love is a binding agent. 1 Corinthians 3.14, I mean Colossians 3.14, excuse me. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Knit together in love. Hearts that are knit together in love. Put on love, which binds together in perfect harmony. You see, the church is this, this glorious place where People that are so very different gather together. But their gathering together is not superficial. 
Actually, it's the deepest sort of thing. Deeper than, if, if my family had a family reunion and you guys could pay for a view it, you would want to do that. Now, we've never had a family reunion and I don't anticipate it. But let me say that in my family, a lot of people are really different. I mean, but, but there's something that binds us together. What? We're family. In the church, it's a greater bond than that. It is a family that was purchased by the blood of Christ. Adopted brothers and sisters whose hearts are knit together, who are so very different. But what binds them together is beyond all of us and rooted in grace that we need not only now, but we need it for eternity. And so the the bond is greater than the differences. And so we put on love. and, And outside of the context of the church, people find their niche groups and divide and, 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 and they generally want to gravitate toward people who are like them and sound like them and reinforce them. And the church is completely different. It is what love does to produce a perfect harmony that cannot be produced in any other way. But I want you to see here that the word full, understanding, knowledge, and mystery... Those aren't just random words that he is picking up on here. There are false teachers in the church at Colossae. They, they are teaching uh, that there is a, there's a secret knowledge that only a few have. Now, I want you to see something. False teaching, heretical teaching, is almost always rooted in an individualism. Oh, you got to go over here to the few who have this secret. Well, what is the secret? Well, I can't really tell you. Maybe you can get in on it. You see, that's the individualism that produces all kinds of heretical teaching. And the church doesn't hide anything. We're to say, all of us feed on this. and All of us have the same access. All of us. But there were those teachers. Who said, There's a deep knowledge. There's a secret knowledge. Gnosticism. Uh, an incipient form here of, of the idea that, oh, there's a spirituality that is so great that the physical doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. But only a few of us have this secret knowledge, and you need to come to us. And this is a mystic, internal spirituality. And maybe someday you can get in on this. Paul says, listen. You know the antidote for that? It's the family called the church. A people whose hearts are knit together in love. And and coming together in Christ's name, that's how you reach full assurance. Not this bogus fullness over here rooted in somebody else trying to hold themselves up as superior to everybody else. This is how you reach the full assurance and understanding. A person over here thinks that they will ultimately confuse you. Maybe you've got it. Maybe you can get in on it. But, But no, full assurance and understanding. And the knowledge, not a secret knowledge, the knowledge of God's mystery, mystery meaning something that has to be revealed by God, but it has been revealed. 
And it has been, this thing has not been done in a corner. Christ came, he was crucified, dead, and buried. He was raised from the dead. We tell everybody about it. There is no secret knowledge here. But the problem is, many people look at a bloody cross and say, folly. It's a mystery revealed that on that cross was the Son of God, paying the penalty not for his own sins, but for those who would believe in him. And then Paul just simply cuts to the chase. You want fullness, you want understanding, you want knowledge. Which is Christ, he says in verse 2. Which is Christ. Fullness can only be known in Christ. The, The assurance can only be had in Christ. The knowledge that we have is only found in Christ, but it is found there. No secret knowledge and inner spirituality. No foolishness that the physical doesn't matter. So they denied the body, Christ having a body and that he was a special teacher and all that. No, he says, no, understand this. This mystery that brings this knowledge, this understanding, this fullness is Christ. False teaching and is always rooted in this kind of self-defining individualism in this sort of secret pathway. And by the way, let me just tell you something. Beware of anybody for whom theology is just simply an individual hobby. There's all kinds of those people. There's people who read Christian theology books all the time. And you look at their life and you say, what are you doing? And they're not doing much. If Christian theology is an individual hobby, if you're reading good theology books, then you have no idea what you're reading. But you see, we can corrupt anything. Our theology is to be lived. We're not trying to impress people intellectually. Spirituality individualized apart from his body and being lived out is a path that leads to destruction. You are not a faithful disciple because you read a lot. You're not a faithful disciple because you know a lot. The test of whether you actually understand and know is whether it draws you to where Christ would have you to be drawn. Are you a faithful family member because of what you know about God? Because God has given you a family. And in that family, it is to be a place where you grow in love, where hearts are knit together. Flesh and blood people who likewise claim the blood of Christ as their only hope and the empty tomb. And we can grow together in understanding this mystery, which is Christ. This is where it happens. Family knit together. By the way, you know, when you think about families and you think about marriage, by the way, marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ and the church is not a picture of marriage. (laughs) Christ and the church is what all of this is about, and marriage is called to picture that. And so that means this, if I'm going to be the best husband or wife I can be, How can I be that 
without a great love for the church since marriage is called the picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. For me to love my spouse appropriately, I should love the church to which this points. What, what about parenting? You see, life in the body of the church equips us for all of, uh, of these things because we're all so different and we've got to deal with one another. And, and I, let me let you in on a secret. Some of us irritate each other. But that doesn't mean we can't serve Jesus together. That it's the way families work. We, we love each other beyond our preferences. We love each other beyond annoying habits. You know, like when you're a pastor and you say from the pulpit that you have this weird thing where you hate pencils and people start mailing you pencils. That's not right. That's not what Galatians 6.6 6 means when it says share in all good things with him who shares the word with you. But it's not just a family. He also points us to a treasure. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. Verse 2 ended, which is Christ. Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want wisdom and knowledge? Don't listen to those voices that want to decenter Christ. No, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. All that is deepest in God is summed up in Christ. It's available to all who are in Christ. Now, this language here, it's not saying here that, that these treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden from the church. It's that they are hidden for the church. They are stored up for the church. They are hidden for the church. Hidden not in the sense that we don't want other people to know about it, but hidden in the sense it's only through faith in Jesus that you can understand and know these treasures. John Calvin puts it like this. He says, however, that the treasures are hidden because they are not seen glittering with great splendor to some but do rather, as it were, lie under the contemptible abasement and simplicity of the cross. For the preaching of the cross is always foolishness to the world, as we have found stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. But for those who are in Christ, we spend our lives marveling at the treasures of Christ. Growing in wisdom that's only found in Him. Growing in knowledge that's only found in Him. We are mesmerized by the wisdom and knowledge that is rightly described as a treasure in Him. Notice the word that it used. You have all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is absolutely nothing you need for eternity that you do not have in Christ. Nothing. Nothing. The most simple person by faith in Christ appropriates wisdom and knowledge that people with PhDs do not have. There is nothing that you need that you do not have in Christ. Now, he says this because these teachers in the church, and they're always out there, come with these, uh, verse 4, it says it, I say this in order that, here's the purpose clause, that no one may delude, the word means deceive or cheat, 
No one may delude you all with plausible arguments, with enticing arguments, with fine-sounding words. You see, that was the problem. That was the danger in the church. With is the means of deception. Delude you with fine-sounding arguments. Now, the reason this is so important is because these arguments are fine-sounding arguments. So how do you how do you keep away from them? Well, that's the whole message of 1 Corinthians. I determined to know nothing among anyone but Christ and Him crucified. Anything that decenters Christ, even if it uses the language of Christ and appropriates the language of the Bible, the language of church, anything that decenters, decenters Christ is to be avoided and rejected. Well, the teachers in the church, oh yeah, you need Christ and all of that, but, but what really is going on here is this. Whenever anybody says, yeah, you've got to have Christ, but what really, shut the door. People appropriate Christ for everything. Their kooky diets, people appropriate Christ for their political view, people appropriate Christ for all kinds of things. But understand, we have all kinds of views because of who Christ is, but what is it? the sinner is none of those things, it is Christ. We always point to Christ. There are all kinds of arguments that, that if we are not being tethered in a family relationship, being knitted together in love, growing in the mystery of uh, God, which is Christ, if we're not doing that, the, we can be tempted. These things are all around us, and oftentimes they use Christian vocabulary. Notice Paul's encouragement in verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you all in spirit. Beautiful. I'm with y'all. I'm not there, but I am agonizing with y'all. I am laboring with you. You you know what this is like. My wife has been away with her her mother this week. They're getting results of chemo and radiation that she's been taking. And uh, I wasn't very hopeful. And we've just been laboring and longing and, and feel almost like we're there because we've been so in tune. And praise God, they said she was cancer-free. Uh, but, but that's not always the case. But you know what it means to be somewhere else, but still to be with someone. That's what Paul says here. Notice that there's nothing detached here. Uh, the, these relationships are not transactional. His heart, his burden, his spirit, human spirit here. Yet I am with y'all in spirit. Then verse 5, rejoicing to see y'all's good order and the firmness of y'all's faith in Christ. I, I love this language here, rejoicing to see. Rejoicing and beholding. By the way, week by week, you and I come here and we come here to rejoice and to behold. We come here to rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ and to behold the glory of God and what He has done for us. We rejoice and behold. How do we behold? We see Him and how He's revealed Himself to us. And in seeing Him and beholding Him, we rejoice all the more. Congregational life creates this culture of rejoicing and beholding where this treasure is valued more and more. You see, this language here of good order 
means discipline, maturity, ready for battle. It's military language. Firmness means good strength. It it means a solid front. These are military terms. Why? Because this pattern of rejoicing and beholding is spiritual warfare. If you aren't rejoicing and beholding and rejoicing and beholding and rejoicing and beholding, then you're in a battle you don't even know you're in and you're losing it. This is the way we battle. He calls us together in this family and we're reoriented week by week. We have the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Look at it. See it here. Oh, I see it. I rejoice in it. I see it. I rejoice in it. That is to be the pattern of our lives. And the way we live that out is every day. But there's this gift of God called the one in seven when we gather together as a community of faith and we do it in a way that strengthens us and changes us. When your life is rooted in that rhythm then fine-sounding arguments that decenter Christ sound as empty as they really are. In fact, the offering is sad compared to the real treasure. The community of the kingdom of Christ, the, the church, is a family with a shared treasure. And it is like it says here in the last couple of verses, a tree. Look with me, beginning of verse 6. Therefore, therefore, Paul says, in light of Christ, the family that you're a part of, knit together in love, the riches that you have of knowledge and wisdom, therefore, as y'all received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, so live in Him, so conduct your lives based on Him. You received, so walk. You received, walk it out. You received too, Christ Jesus, the the Messiah, the Savior. It says the Lord. He's the Lord of the cosmos through creation. He's the Lord of, of service through the incarnation. He's the Lord of redemption through the cross. He's the Lord of life through the resurrection. He's the Lord of the church through the gift of the indwelling spirit. He's the Lord of the new heavens and new earth through His sure return. He is the Lord. Y'all received Christ Jesus. Walk in Him. Why would you trade anything for the Lord of creation? Why would you trade anything for the one who comes in the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, who gives the gift of the Spirit and who will return and consummate His kingdom? Listen, go back to first things. You received Him. You received Him to walk in Him. Verse 7. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. By the way, that in Him, it's found in verse 9, twice in verse 10, in verse 11, in verse 15. In Him, in Him, in Him. This is all and only in Him. Who tells us in chapter 1, the one who is the preeminent one, the one who is supreme above all things. We have all of this in Him. 
what you have in Him, what you have received in Him. Walk it out. Be rooted in that. This language of rooted here, be, be deeply planted and keep drawing nourishment day by day. Keep those roots going down lower and lower and lower. Keep drawing on Him. Keep depending upon Him. The way you gain the nourishment is by keeping, keeping on coming to Him. You see, when we just sort of give a, a passing sort of head nod to Him, and we only come to Him in certain moments where we know we really are needy in those moments. That's not the way we're called to live. Our roots are to go deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's to make us sturdier and sturdier and sturdier. The, the, the verb that's used here means something that happened in the past that keeps having results. That's the particular verb here for rooted. You, you keep being deeply planted John 15.5, I am the vine, you all are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you all can do nothing. I wonder if you believe that. Rooted. How are we rooted? We're rooted as we seek him, the head. What is the way we do that? We live within the context of the body and we walk in Him together. We're rooted, built up in Him. It it could be mixing metaphors the way He does in Ephesians and this is the foundation of a building that when the building goes on it, it settles even more. But, But it's also language here that is sometimes used for what is rooted. What is rooted is also built up. But it doesn't really matter. The picture is the same. There has to be a, a solid foundation and there has to be something that, that there that causes you to be firm that, that other people don't even see. It's that you're rooted in Christ. And that means that you're rooted in the church. You're not the only branch that is rooted in Christ. He says here, established in the faith, confirmed in the faith, rooted, built up established. He says, just as y'all were taught. And then notice this at the end. Abounding in thanksgiving. Overflowing in thanksgiving. He, he doesn't say here that, that, that this picture is that occasionally we could muster up thankfulness in the midst of our discontent. Abounding in thanksgiving. Overflowing in thanksgiving. We can't help it because of who He is, what He's done, what He's given us, and where He has placed us in this community of love with the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and the firmness that He's given us to be rooted in Him. Apart from Him, we could do nothing, but we are not apart from Him. Therefore, we are to be abounding in thanksgiving. Probably also, uh, false teachers use the language of abounding and having an abundant life that they give through this secret knowledge that they have. He says, no, we abound in thanksgiving as we are rooted in Christ, as we are built in Him, as we're established in the faith. That is the faith of the gospel. Nourishment day by day. Now, I love this, this Pauline habit he's got. So he says, walk in Him, rooted in Him. You you have a firmness in which you can't be moved by anything that shouldn't move you. And yet, that causes you to go everywhere you go without fear. 
We saw it in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding. Here we have it here. Walk in Him, rooted in Him, abounding in thanksgiving. You see, our rootedness, our firmness doesn't produce passivity. It produces the opposite. This abounding in things. By the way, Paul is writing this in prison. What gospel power abounding in thanksgiving no matter what displays. What gospel power. It is a mark of the kingdom. Now, we... We've got to get by this thing that where we tell ourselves, yeah, you know, it says to be thankful, and I know you're supposed to. Nobody really is thankful, uh, you know, all the time, and, and so that's not reality. So occasionally I'll muster it up. Now, it is true nobody is thankful all the time. It is not true that you couldn't be. God has given you everything you need to abound in thanksgiving. If you do not, it is not a problem with not having what you need to abound in thanksgiving. It's a choice not to do so. He says, y'all started in the gospel. Continue in the gospel. And abound rejoicing in the gospel. That's a way to live. Now, do you see this? These images that he gives us, are so powerful. They teach us about the blessings He has for us and who we are to be as a people in response to them. A family, a treasure, and a tree. Now, there's no room in these images. A family is not one. You by yourself are not a family. He's given you a family. Live in the family. Love the family. Have your hearts knit together. A treasure. He hasn't just given you a treasure. We all have access to this treasure and it never runs out and it's more than any of us could ever imagine. And we only realize the wonder and the glory of the treasure as we partake of it together. And a tree? Do you really think you're the only branch? If you're the only branch, it's a dead tree. It's the wrong tree. Do you see what he's doing with this image? He's trying to strengthen them to face what they need to face. And he does that by pointing to Christ and His church. Rooted in the love of Christ. And rooted in the love of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to respond to the truth of Your Word. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to know what it means to live this out for Your glory and our eternal good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.